With so many investment options and just the industry jargon out there, it's hard to figure out if something is worth investing in or not. Sometimes it's not even investing at all. It's pure speculation. So have you been speculating or investing? Let's go find out. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights, just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Reinemann, and welcome back to the show. So excited to have you guys here. Thank you so much for joining. Before we jump into the show, let's hear a quick message from our sponsor. Over 2 million people are earning money by hosting on Airbnb. It's free to list and Airbnb has a tool that'll help you price your place just right. If you're worried about your property when you list with them, don't be. Airbnb offers something called a host guarantee that helps protect your property in the unlikely event that something goes wrong. And here's the deal. You're the boss when you host on Airbnb. Your home, your rules. Host when you want and how you want. You could list one bedroom or the entire place. It's totally up to you. So whether you're looking for some side cash or a steady income, hosting on Airbnb might be one of the best investments you haven't made yet. When you go to financialresidency.com slash Airbnb and start hosting, you're going to receive a $100 cash bonus if you generate $500 in booking value by December 31st. Of course, terms and conditions apply. You know, investing can be really simple or it can be extremely difficult but going either way is honestly dependent on you. I'm so excited to bring on our next guest today because he is brilliant and passionate about helping people become confident and better investors. So much so that we even got him to spill a few of his secrets here on the show. All right, not all of his secrets because he shares those in his own podcast, which is amazing by the way, called Money for the Rest of Us. But as you'll find out, there's quite a bit you should know about narrowing down your investment choices. And it's all a matter of looking at it as if it is an investment or is it speculation. And David even goes way into why algorithms can't be trusted and the fundamental flaws of human behavior when considering using software to help you along your investment journey. But before we get into the show, it's time for that important disclaimer. And yeah, I know it's something you don't want to hear again. I get it. Trust me. It's not fun to listen to, but it's, it is something that you absolutely need to know because the reality is I got to tell you about the reasons why you shouldn't take what you learn here at face value. I mean, it's great that I give you all this information on perspective on personal finance matters, but I really can't give you any specific information without your data in front of me. And even if it is in front of me, like it is on our Friday financial health assessments, it's only what you record. It's not all the details. So instead of running with what you learn here, be sure to either reach out to me or another fee-only financial planner that can get to know you personally. All right, now let's jump in with David. David, what's up, man? Thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thanks. Awesome to be here. This is going to be super fun. So I listen to very few podcasts these days and I just had Roger Whitney on and I listened to Rogers because I think he's got a real interesting way of telling stories and things. I actually listened to your money for the rest of us 
because I get informed and I love your perspective. So really excited to have you here. And for those that don't know David, you need to check out his podcast, Money for the Rest of Us. But David, I wanted to have you on to talk about something interesting. We've talked about stocks, we've talked about real estate, even cryptocurrency, but we've never really discussed what particular investments to pursue and in what order. And I know you have a very extensive background in investing. So I'd like to kind of open it up to you and kind of let you go with this. Where would we start? Well, sure. Well, first off, I looked the other day, only 4% of US private workers have a defined benefit pension plan, which means their company is sort of overseeing their retirement. Most of us have to do the work ourselves, which means we're portfolio managers. You know, what a portfolio manager does is they allocate money among different investments. And we need to have the portfolio manager mindset. I used to be a professional money manager. I met with a lot of portfolio managers and they have some type of decision framework or an investment process. And that's that's really what we want to talk about. You know, as individuals, how do we decide which assets? And, and the way that I like to look at it is first, try to simplify it as much as possible. And, and the one way to do that, the simplest classification that I know is to differentiate between what's an investment and what's a speculation. An investment typically has cash flow. So if it's stocks, it has dividends typically or earnings cash flow. If it's bonds, it has interest rates. A speculation doesn't have that. And so with an investment, because there's cash flow, it has a positive expected return. You can feel quite confident over a long enough holding period that you'll you'll make money because at least because of that cash flow. Hopefully, you know, potentially there's some capital appreciation also. The speculation, there is no cash flow. And so whether the return will be positive or negative, there's some disagreement on that. It all depends on what investors or speculators are willing to pay. And oftentimes I see new investors chase a speculation thinking that's investing, whereas it, it really like cryptocurrency or gold or foreign exchange. And as individuals, we should first, the bedrock, the foundation of our investments should be investments. So cash flow generating asset classes, be it stocks, bonds. And, and that's an important component, is just being able to, to simplify the universe. Another aspect then is to really, to be able to explain it. I, I had one of my first institutional clients was a college foundation, in Indiana. And I remember the investment committee chair, I, you know, I'd meet with them once a quarter and they're all volunteers, but they were managing a $200 million endowment for this university. And he told me, I won't invest or recommend investing in anything unless I can explain it to a, a member that's not on the committee. And oftentimes we get into trouble because we'll pursue an investment and we hope it goes up, but we can't really explain how it makes money, what, what drives the return. And the act of doing so keeps us humble. I mean, academic research shows that individuals, when they've done studies, if they were, they were just asked, how does a zipper work? And well, we think we know how the zipper works, but if we actually have to explain something like that, we realize, well, maybe we don't know as much as we thought. And so before we invest in anything, we need to be able to explain it in simple terms. Here's how the investment works. Here's how it makes money. So those are, those are really two sort of simple rules of thumb before we invest, be able to explain it and classify it, whether it's investing, speculating, and gambling. And there's other sort of rules of thumb we can use and talk about in this episode also. 
Yeah, of course. I think it is important. And we've talked a little bit about crypto on the show. And, you know, I, I tell people like, I don't understand it. I can't turn around and explain it. And if in literally was relating this to, you know, Bitcoin and, and those things when we had that guest on that, you know, it's fascinating to understand and to learn a little bit more. But if you don't truly know how it works, you have no business buying it or investing in it or hoping that it works out. One of the things you, you mentioned was decision framework. And I'm wondering, are you referring to like an investment policy statement with that kind of framework for someone to think through how they would invest and then having this statement to essentially guide them as markets are volatile and they're, they evolve through their investing careers? That Well, yes. Well, in, in my case, so I, I have 10 questions that I think individuals should answer before they invest in something. So that that's an example of a framework. It could be an investment policy statement which institutions have, some individuals have, where they might have a target allocation. So if they're looking at investment, where does it fall? I personally don't have a written investment policy statement, but we used to write them all the time for institutions. Like most institutional endowments and foundations, pension plans, they actually have a policy statement, mainly because it's the strategic plan and there's turnover in the board that guides that particular institutional investor. As individuals, it can be helpful to write it down. Just and you know, it was part of one's financial plan. But what I'm, I'm talking about a little even more specific. You know, what do I need to know before I invest in something? And an, an example of another question that I ask is, who's on the other side of the trade? So whenever we buy something, we want to know who's selling it to us. And we do this naturally. If we're, we're out buying a car, we want to know who's selling it to us and why. But we often don't do that when it comes to investing. Right now, if you go out and buy an individual stock, you know, back in the 1940s, most of stocks were held by individuals, and they didn't do they didn't do a whole lot of research on them. They just kind of held them. And so, someone like Benjamin Graham, who you know wrote the classic intelligent investor book, he could get an informational edge because he could figure out well this stock's not priced correctly, and and earn excess returns. Now, when we're buying an individual stock, it's usually you know most trades are done by algorithms and institutions, and we have to think, all right, if I'm buying a stock. I'm saying that the price is not right, that it's incorrect. Otherwise, there is no reason to buy it. Although it's easier to just buy an index fund because index funds assumes the stocks are all priced correctly. But if you're buying an individual stock, you need some type of edge to say, all right, this is why I think it's undervalued. It's too cheap. And this is why I believe I know more than all the other institutions that are researching this stock. And that's an important component. And it keeps us sort of in our wheelhouse. So we don't reaching for areas we don't have extra expertise. If we ask, well, who's selling it to us and why? And that's why I like, I like index funds, but there, there are asset classes that are more active that are, or vehicles like closed end funds is a type of mutual fund. It trades on an exchange like an exchange traded fund, but it's mostly held by individuals. And as a result, and these individuals panic and they sell. And the beauty of, of closed end funds, you can always see what the net asset value is. So what's, what is the value of the asset? And you can compare it to the price, the market price. And the average discount for these closed-end funds is about 6%. And during market turmoil, that discount will get to 10%, which means you can buy assets worth $100 for $90. And you know that because, well, who owns these and why are they selling them? And that's a very important component of any type of investing or business transaction. In fact, especially in business. If you buy a business, why are they selling it? What's the cash flow? We need to do that in terms of investing also. 
Yeah. So I want to unpack a, a couple things here really quick. You said that you don't have an, a written investment policy statement. Now, someone who's managed like billions of dollars, I'm curious why. I mean, I look at my investments once a month. So I once a month, and partly I have a membership community where I share my asset mix. So I mean, I know how I am invested. I know what I own. I know what my expected return is. I'm just trying to earn four or five percent. So I'm a very conservative investor. I'm focusing on capital preservation, and it's short enough that I can memorize my policy statement. You know, for institutions, these policies would be five or six pages, and it would have all the restrictions, and it would have the targets. And I, did, I it's short enough that I can. I've internalized it effectively, so I don't write it out. Which makes sense. I mean, you're a professional. You do this for a living. It makes sense. But I was, I wanted to kind of clear the air because, you know, everyone listening here, are, they're physicians or they're married to physicians. They're not professional money managers, portfolio managers. And I don't want them thinking that they don't need to write it down. No, I think it's, I think it's very helpful, particularly physicians. What I've seen is they get approached a lot about investments. Absolutely. And I mean, they have a friend that has a startup. And I'm, in fact, I remember meeting with a physician a couple of years ago and had already invested in the startup and didn't really step back and think of what has to happen for it to be successful or some of these other questions. And you know, didn't realize how speculative this startup investment was. And, and as a result, over allocated too much money in it, was then worried because of the, the investment, like most startups, don't do well. In, in my view, a startup that's a pure speculation. And the way that I approach a speculation is I only allocate enough that if I lose it all, no regrets. And that's just how I approach it. So if I own, I own gold, I assume gold will go to zero. I own cryptocurrencies. All right. I scale my exposure, assuming it'll go to zero. Hopefully it won't. But definitely with a startup, I assume it's going to go to zero because <laughs> most do. You know, in the venture capital world, most venture capital investments, which are investments in startups, don't break even or lose money. Only a few are home runs, which is why it's even more difficult for individuals because you can't allocate to 15 or 20 startups. Typically, it's hard to do. It takes a lot of time. That's why they have professional money managers do it. Oh, yeah, and it takes a lot of money. Now, there's more platforms to do it for lower amounts. But you know, one of my questions is why, if you have a great startup idea, why would you go to a crowdfunding platform other than, I guess, to validate the idea? But if you can get institutional money, that will provide guidance. Oftentimes they'll do that. Yeah. I, I look at it the other way. And as the person that would be investing or could be investing, how are you going to one, be able to do all the due diligence and be able to explain what each one of those does if you're spreading it too thin. And so I'm, I'm just not a fan of that kind of thing. Oh, right. Me either. So as someone who you said, you are a conservative investor, I'm curious, is there a percentage of net worth or a percentage of investments that you would allocate to something like this? Because I could hear people right now kind of in their head thinking, well, I, you know, I make four or 500,000. I'm putting, you know, money in my IRA, my 401k or 403Bs. Like I'm doing all the right stuff and I have a little bit left over mm -hmm. and I get pitched all these things. Like what would be something realistic? So I'm just curious, like where you sit as a conservative investor, what would you allocate? Generally 10% or less to speculation. So there's just a ton of funny money. So in that bucket for me, that's where I have cryptocurrency, that's where I have gold. That's where I've done you know, some startup investing, sort of, you know, brother-in-law startup didn't work out, things like that. And that happened. Yeah. No, well, it still might, you never know. But, yeah. <laughs> but okay. it was a good idea. You want to, but you know, let generally less than 10%.
Okay. So, so if you had a million dollar portfolio, I just want to break it down for everyone, then 10% or less would be allocated to things that are speculative that could go to zero, which means that you are doing the correct stuff, the more safer things that you truly understand, no research, stocks, bonds, traditional investments with the other 90%. Correct. Assuming, I mean, you're comfortable with potentially losing $100,000 of your portfolio. Because even within speculations, like the odds of gold going to zero, which is about 4% of my net worth, it's pretty low. It's been around for millennium. There's a limited supply. So, I mean, 10% in startups, that's probably pretty high. Yeah. You know, my allocate, I have about 8% in what I call private capital, which would be institutional fund of funds that are invested in real estate, venture capital, leverage buyout, things like that. I mean, that's kind of a hybrids. I mean, there's some speculation there, obviously, but also that there is some income. Yeah. I just want, you know, and this is not saying it would do the disclaimers all around, David, so you don't have to worry about it, but this is not saying this is what you should do. This is, I want to get some understanding from. Yeah. This is all general education. Exactly. So one of the things, and this is, it, it would be silly of me not to ask you, cause I love your show. I think everyone, if you want to get some real in-depth understanding on investments, it's fascinating to hear David's thought process on these things. You've got two ideas that I loved. You just did a show invest like a Tesla. And I want people to go back and actually listen to, I'll make sure I tag it on social and everything, but can you kind of just give us a high level on what you're kind of talking about when you say invest like a Tesla and it's not investing in a Tesla? Investing in Tesla would be speculation, uh, given there is no cash flow there at this point. But what I was particularly focused on was algorithms. The I test drove a Tesla a month or so ago and did their, their auto driver, self-drive technology and was a little freaked out by it. Like, I, like am I letting go... You know, letting this thing change the lane and things like that. And it turns out that that's not unusual. Most of us don't trust algorithms. And they've done studies on that. We don't, we, and we'll never trust an algorithm because, and this is based on an academic paper that I noted in the episode, I don't recall the authors, but what they found as humans, we want algorithms to be perfect. And so we want them to be perfect all the time. So our standard for automated investing or automated anything is perfection, but we don't hold ourselves to that same standard. And, and one reason we trust humans more than algorithms, because while we know humans make mistakes, there's always that hope that they'll get the right answer, that there is a right answer. And one of the things we learn in investing is, and Mervyn King, who used to be the, the chair of the Bank of England, says, investors, we don't optimize, we cope. Now, there is no perfect, there is no perfect asset allocation or a perfect investment. And so as a result, that's why an investment policy statement or trying to automate our investments is fine and simplify from that way. And to the extent that we might use algorithms in our, our medical practice or things like that, we have to just be recognizing, are we holding things to a different standard? Are we seeking for perfection in our investing? And in one way I approach it, and there's this concept of modern portfolio theory. That is, is sort of this theory for deciding the optimal asset allocation for an individual. So financial planners use it. I use it as an institutional money manager. Well, there is no optimal portfolio because once you dig into the meat of these asset allocation models, which I used to create, there's a lot of guesses there because you need an expected return and volatility of every asset class and how they move relative to each other. 
what's the volatility of a, an apartment building? It's only appraised once a year. And so instead of focusing on optimizing my approach to deciding, again, as portfolio managers, I call it an asset garden approach. Now, you don't optimize a flower garden. You just have a variety of plants. Now, there's some principles or rules of thumbs. You know, you put the bigger plants in back. I mean, I'm not a gardener, but you just have a diversity of plants, some bear fruit, some perennials, some annuals. Well, our investments can be the same way. You know, the bedrock is stocks and bonds, and you can add some additional spice or variety to your asset mix, but not, not put so much emotional weight into it. Because once we have this optimal, supposedly optimal allocation, well, then we're terrified to make any changes. But if we realize there's just more flexibility there, just like a flower garden, you know, if a plant dies or isn't doing so well, you're fine to pull it out. If it was optimized, it's like, well, that plant had to go in that spot and nothing else, then, then you freak out. So you mentioned it's built upon a, a bedrock of stocks and bonds. And it comes back to what I really want to get into is, you know, how do you decide which particular investment you're going for. So we start with stocks and bonds and where would you go next? Well, I mean, I would start with what's the percentage mix and, and asset allocation would be very simple. You have stocks and the way that you look at stocks is the expected return over the next 10 years is about six, six and a half percent. And I mean, that, that's a reasonable return based on its current cash flow, earnings growth and valuations. They can fall 50 to 60%. And so deciding how much to put in stocks in terms of risk is, you know, we don't care about volatility. We care about what is the personal harm from a 60% loss in the stock market. If you're three years from retirement and you're 90% in stocks, it could be devastating because it, it could impact that. And so that that's sort of the core decision. So if it's not in stocks, then what should it be in? Well, it should be in bonds or cash. And that depends on what yield. And right now in cash, you're getting a 2% yield which is the same yield you're getting on 30-year bonds. And so you should be more conservative and put it in the cash. But you don't need a model to do that. You can do that with a spreadsheet or a calculator. Well, if I put 70% in stocks or 80% and stocks lose half the money, that means my portfolio potentially could lose 40% and not recover for four or five years. And we have to get comfortable with that. And we can buy a global index fund or ETF that owns thousands of securities, very low expense. And, and investing can be that simple. And the analogy I use is, is wardrobes. You know, there's all types of ways to dress. Some people like to wear the same uniform every day. Very simple. And investing can be like that. Other people want more variety in how they dress. And the same can be for investing. Yeah, I love that analogy. So you said something where, you know, if you're 90% stock and you're three years from retirement, like it could be devastating. Might not be, but it could be. Right? We don't know the outlook of what the market's truly going to do. But how would that look? Maybe just talk a little bit on the other side of, well, what if that 60% decline did come, but this was a brand new physician, they're 32 years old, and they're just starting to invest? In their case, again, that's not going to impact their lifestyle because we have two assets. We might have a financial assets, but we have our human capital, which is basically our lifetime earning stream. And if you're a new physician, you have 30 years potentially of earnings that you can convert to financial assets. And so in that case, you can be a more aggressive investor, maybe have 90% in stocks, because if you only have 50,000 in savings and it's worth 25,000, it's not gonna change your lifestyle. And so it's, it's the loss, but it's the personal financial harm caused by the loss. If you're near retirement, it's gonna impact your lifestyle. Warren Buffett, for example, in the 2013 annual letter, mentioned that for his wife's estate when he passed away, 
he instructed the trustees to put 90% in a Vanguard index fund, 10% in bonds. And that seems very aggressive. But what he didn't say is how much money is there, right? If, if it's whatever, a $300 million portfolio, if it falls by half, it's probably not going to impact the lifestyle. And so again, it depends on how much you have. If you're a retiree and you're spending 4% of your portfolio as a retiree and it's cut in half, then you're spending 8%, which means your money could run out 10 years earlier than originally planned. Or you just had a 50% reduction in lifestyle. Oh yeah, if you have that flexibility, exactly. So I'm curious on your thoughts on index investing, because I know that you primarily do, and you you then bring in some active strategy for yourself. I think with international, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I remember I'm trying to remember a conversation from like two FinCons ago where we met, but I'm curious your thought on, we see it out there is, you know, index, index investing so large, it's herd investing and this eventually it's a bubble. It's all going to pop. Like you, you hear all these weird analogies and things. So I'm just curious your thought on index investing and, and it's kind of, future? Well, first off, there are more indices out there than there are stocks. So when we talk about indexing, we have to think about what index are we talking about? Typically, when people think of indexing, they think of a like the S&P 500 index fund or a capitalization weighted index fund. And estimates right now, I looked at this the other day, you know, most ETFs and mutual funds at this point, most of it is indexed. But mutual funds and ETFs only make up around 15% of the stock market. I mean, there are still many pension plans, hedge funds, and individuals that own individual stocks, which means most, when we talk about herding, you mean everybody's doing it. Well, everybody's still not indexing. And you know, I index because it has basically outperformed professional investors. I mean, it, it's owning the market. You know, indexing is the easiest way to invest because you're not having to say a particular stock is Misprice. You don't have to do the research. So you just buy the market, whatever the market is. Now, there's different ways to do that. Now, one way that I index is what's known as fundamental indexing. And so instead of each holding being weighted by size, it's weighted by other metrics such as revenue or earnings. And the benefit of that is because most index funds, the bigger the holding, the bigger the weight, if there is mispricing within the stock market. So let's say the FANG stocks, the biggest stocks, they're mispriced. People probably don't know what the FANG stocks are. Oh, so like Facebook, Amazon, or Apple, and, and Google. So basically big tech companies, which are the one of some of the biggest weights in capitalization weighted index funds. Well, if they're not priced right, in other words, if they the investors have pushed up the price too much, they're going to have a sizable weight in an index fund, whereas something that's weighted more by revenue or earnings will have a smaller weight. And so using sort of this fundamental indexing approach, you tend to underweight the most expensive companies and overweight cheaper companies. So it's kind of a built-in value style of indexing. So we can't just say all indexing is bad or all in indexing is good. It depends on how it's done. And that gets back to, even before we buy an index fund, be able to explain what is it, you know, what's in there and what are expenses and things like that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really happy you said that last point because it does come back to understanding research, digging in and just knowing what you're putting your money into, not uh, being an ostrich, shoving your head in the sand and being like, ah, oh, this is what you know Jane does. So it's good enough for her. It's good enough for me. We want you guys to really be thinking through how you're investing, what you're doing and how that relates to 
your overall finances in that. So David, before we we end up here, please tell us more about you, the money for the rest of this podcast, and then this killer book that just came out, which you were gracious enough to uh, give us a copy. So we will be doing a, a fun giveaway in our community for it. Tell us about the book and the podcast. So the podcast has been going on for five years. It's, it's a weekly show. It's a, I don't do interviews. So it's basically, I set up the podcast a lot like the endowment foundation clients that I used to have, where we would just talk for 25, 30 minutes, explain investments, different aspects about it. I talk about the economy and money and how all these, these pieces fit together. And so that, that's a weekly basis. The book, it's also titled Money for the Rest of Us. The subtitle is 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. And it really goes through the, the, some of the framework that we talked about in this episode. What, what are the 10 questions that we should answer before we allocate to a specific investment opportunity? And the benefit of having an investment framework like that, it just gives us more confidence in our investing. We're not, you know, physicians use checklists when they go through a different uh, various procedures. I mean, this, this is a checklist for investing that we should just step back. And it helps us decide because there's so many opportunities out there where we should focus on in terms of our investing and, and allocate accordingly. I love it. And so, you know, when we talk about investing, you know, everyone, this is one piece of that big pie of financial planning. And it's an important piece. It's one that all of you think is only what financial planning is, what it's not. But this book I know is going to be amazing because I've listened to David for years and he's brilliant. So I can't wait to dive into the book. We'll be doing a giveaway. So check out our community, financialresidency.com slash community. If you haven't joined us, I don't know why not. Please do hang out with us. But David, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, it's time for our recap. And here are three takeaways that I'd love for you to walk away with. Takeaway number one, in order to make good investment decisions, some type of investment framework needs to happen. And David mentions that he creates a classification system, even if it means understanding the difference between investments and speculation. Differentiate between what's an investment and what's a speculation. An investment typically has cash flow. So if it's stocks, it has dividends typically or earnings cash flow. If it's bonds, it has interest rates. A speculation doesn't have that. And so with an investment, because there's cash flow, it has a positive expected return. Takeaway number two, David recently did a show on invest like a Tesla to demonstrate investment versus speculation by diving into how the algorithm works and the flaws of relying on one. And I love the analogy here, and I hope you did too. But here's a reminder by what he meant. Most of us don't trust algorithms. And they've done studies on that. We don't, we, and we'll never trust an algorithm. Because, and this is based on an academic paper that I noted in the episode, I don't recall the authors, but what they found as humans, we want algorithms to be perfect. And so we want them to be perfect all the time. So our standard for automated investing or automated anything is perfection. And lastly, definitely not least, takeaway number three, seeking perfection in investing is like sticking your finger in the air and making a best guess. But there's a good approach to go about adding diversity to your portfolio. And David talked about flowers and plants, but ultimately left us with this to chew on. Deciding the optimal asset allocation for an individual. So financial planners use it. I use it as an institutional money manager. 
Well, there is no optimal portfolio because once you dig into the meat of these asset allocation models, which I used to create, there's a lot of guesses there. All right, for one of my favorite parts of the show, our quick community update. And you know, when you shoot for the stars, usually you'll actually hit one. And that's kind of what I felt like I've done here with Financial Residency. And I know that I've been promising updates on the upcoming book. You'll get those soon enough. But as a quick insider glance at the progress, I just sat down with our publisher for like 13 hours discussing the framework, our launch strategy. And of course, we cleaned up the book and what feels like our probably 300th round of editing. So about the time that you're actually listening to this episode, the book should be nearly finished and soon to be ready to sent out for beta reading. Honestly, this is like a dream come true for the podcast, for me, and I'm just so happy that you all are a part of it. So thank you so much for being here. Stay tuned for more details about how I'm trying to get our community involved in the process. And you can follow along with the progress and learn about the special pre-order bonuses by subscribing at financialresidency.com slash subscribe. And you can hit that link that's in the description of how you're listening to me right now. The show, go to your podcast player, hit that little link and subscribe. Next Monday, I'll be discussing the fate of public service loan forgiveness with Dr. Ben White. And it is fascinating. We get super nerdy on it. But it, again, like I said, it was a fascinating show and it should make all of you going for PSLF feel a whole lot better on the program. So have a great week. See you guys on Wednesday. Cheers. Cheers.